0: That's what I love about Sunday. Sing along as the choir sways. Every verse of amazing grace. And then we shake the preacher's hand. Go home into your blue jeans. Have some chicken and some baked beans. Take a backyard football team. Not do much of anything. That's what I love about Sunday. really awkward standing here while that's playing the whole time in my country shirt. Uh, But that's a great song. That's a great intro. Um, I don't know what you think about when you think about Sundays. Uh, When you have a room this size, there's a lot of different backgrounds when it comes to your expectations and your your experience growing up. Uh, Maybe for you, Sundays sounds like that song. You know, you grew up in a traditional church and you think about grandma's hands waving high, choir singing in the background, chicken after church. Or maybe, you know, you didn't necessarily grow up in a religious home, and so Sundays is just a day off. It's a day you get to relax. You know, it's the day after Saturday. It's the day before Monday. Uh, for me, I grew up in a Catholic home, and we went to Mass. And so when I think about Sundays when I was growing up, I had a lot of different, different experiences and thoughts. I remember when I was growing up, Sundays was the day for dressing up and messing up your hair. We had to dress up really nice for Sundays in the Sprankle family. We had to put on our best clothes, which usually meant I had to wear these really tight pants that I didn't like, that were super uncomfortable, that I only wore on Sundays. And when I would sit down, they would go up to like my calf. And uh, it was the day that my parents would do my hair because I had to look nice, which usually meant that I was rocking the alfalfa hairstyle, where it was just combed right down the middle, usually when my dad would comb my hair. Which, you know, made me feel a little self-conscious. I was only seven, eight, nine years old, but I cared about what my hair looked like. And uh, I remember Sundays was also the day when you'd either get bear hugged or your hand crushed by a total stranger. Because what happened is, as Father Ned, our priest, he would say, the Lord be with you. And you'd say, and also with you. And then he would say this little rap that I couldn't quite understand. And then we would all stand up and we'd look around at total strangers and have to introduce ourselves. And so, you know, it could go one of two ways. There was the bear hug lady who would just scoop you up and squeeze the life out of you. Or there was the guy that shook your hand and wanted to show you how a real man does it. And he would just squeeze your little fingers till they were purple. And this is my experience, no joke, every week on Sundays, we would have the sprinkle section and it would always have the same people behind and we'd always have the same experience. My favorite part of Sundays growing up, though, was the was the snack time, or at least what I thought was snack time. It's not snack time. I'm an adult now. I know it's communion. It's very important. It's the body and the blood of Christ. It has real meaning. We're going to do one in a couple weeks. But as a kid, it was just snack time. And that was my favorite part. You know, you would get to the part of the service where father Ned he would take off his green, like there was like this green shawl and he would lay out this really nice white sheet on the table. And that's when that was like ringing, ringing the dinner bell. Like you knew it was about to be snack time. And so you had to be strategic as a kid because there was these two lines. There was the alcoholic and the non-alcoholic line, right? There was the real wine, and then there was the grape juice. And if you're a kid, you drank the grape juice. And there was this lady, and she would hold, like, this chalice of dark purple grape juice. And you wanted to be in the front of the line because if you were at the front of the line, you could take a bigger drink. You'd get a bigger sip. You could even get a gulp. But if you're at the back of the line, man, she regulated that cup. And, you know, when you're a kid, this is what you think about when you think about Sundays. Now, you may think that this is crazy, I think if you ask my sisters, they probably back me up. Uh, but my point is, is in a room this size, in the United States, there could be a hundred different backgrounds when it comes to Sundays, a hundred different expectations. What you think about when you think about Sundays may be totally different than the person sitting next to you. And the expectations that you have when you come to a gathering like this, they make a big impact. They can determine whether or not you feel comfortable, whether or not, um, you know, you can, you can focus and hear from God, whether, whether or not you want to come back. And so what we've been doing in this last, uh, last week and then over the next couple of weeks in this message series that's called Sundays is we're looking at why we do what we do in these Sunday gatherings. And more specifically, we're looking at what is it that God wants to do through this time? What is God's viewpoint on this gathering? Uh, what is the purpose of it all? And how can we keep it from growing stale and routine and for its meaning to be drained out? What, what do we have to do to make, make that happen? So last week, Randy looked at... Um, uh, why we sing on Sundays. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at um, why we serve and, and why we give. But today, we're going to be looking at the question, uh, why do we gather around the Word of God weekly? Why does the Bible have such a prominent and central role in all that we do in these Christian gatherings on Sundays? Now, this, this isn't necessarily something that you would just assume is right or good. In America, for the most part, the Bible gets a pretty bad rap there's not a lot of respect for the Bible when you look at our cultural centers like Hollywood or even in our academic world. The Bible is seen as, as non-credible. It's not an authority on anything. It's, it's full of superstitions and it's fairy tales and it's, it's full of inconsistencies. And you, just, you really can't take it too seriously. I mean, you know the people who wrote the Bible didn't know about science, right? And so if you want to take the Bible seriously and you, you know, it makes you feel good, then great, good for you. But to actually base your life on it, To make decisions in light of what the Bible says, to let the Bible inform the way you raise your family, your your morality, your sexual ethics? Well that's just crazy. That's just that's just religious nuttery. And this is how we talk. This is the attitude towards the Bible in American culture today. You've heard this, maybe you've thought some of these things before. And so we just can't assume that it makes sense to everybody that the Bible is going to have this prominent and central role in the lives of Christians and in our gathering. But when you read the New Testament, when you, when you actually look at what Jesus and the, the apostles said and taught and how they lived, the Bible did have that role. The Bible is central to the life of Christ, the apostles, and everything that the church did. And so Paul would write to churches like Colossians, and he would say things like this. He'd say, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the Bible soak you up like a sponge soaks up water. Let it dwell in you richly. And then it says, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. This is a picture of a community where the Bible is informing everything we do. We encourage one another. We challenge one another. We warn one another. We teach one another. We sing the Bible together. It has a central role in the life of Christians and in the life of the church. But why does that make sense? That's the question. Why would it make sense to give it such a prominent place? Why do we make such a big deal about the Bible when we gather together here on Sundays? There are a lot of answers to that question. There are a lot of reasons why it makes sense. Uh, But I would like to focus on a few things today. I'd like to focus on some things that God provides mankind through the Bible that we can't get anywhere else and that we desperately need. What God provides us through the Bible is he provides us a level for our lives, he provides us a compass in the chaos, he provides us an MRI for our soul, and he provides us a mirror for our moral character. And let's take a look at each one of these in some detail. Let's start with a level for our lives. So this is a level. You use a level to make things straight, whether you're hanging a picture or you're framing a house or you're laying a foundation You want to make sure that things are level, that they're straight. If things are crooked, you're going to have problems. Now, we as human beings, we also use levels for our lives. We level our lives against other people and their lives. We look around at what other people are doing, what other people think. And that gives us some sense of whether or not not we're off or whether or not we're straight. So ask yourself this question. Who do you look to to level your life? Who influences you? Who are the people that are your example and your models for how you talk, how you dress, how you work? Whose marriage do you look to to see if your marriage is on or off? Who do you try to stay up with financially to see if you're in the right spot financially? We talk about keeping up with the Joneses. Who are your Joneses? If you're in high school, if you're in junior high, who are the cool kids? Who are the students that other people like, they want to dress like? Whatever they're into, everybody else gets into. These are the people, these are the students that other students are leveling their lives off of. Because as human beings, we're all looking around and watching each other. We're trying to find the good life. We're looking around to see who has it, and we want to get it. And so we're constantly trying to level ourselves off what other people are doing. And here's the problem. There's a real problem with that. The problem is, is that nobody is so wise or so good or has so much success or knows so much about life that they can really provide you direction in every area of your life. There's nobody who can really serve as a level for each part of your lives. Nobody has that kind of skill. Nobody's that good. And so what that means is that for you as a human, looking for a way to make sure that your life is level, a lot of it is trial and error. A lot of it is the best that your wits and your will can get. And that's hard. Because you do your best to build your life choice by choice and decision by decision and decade by decade and relationship by relationship and dollar by dollar. But if it's not built on a solid foundation, it can come crashing down like a house that's built on a faulty foundation. You've ever seen a house on a bad foundation? This is a picture of a house It was built on a foundation that was not flat and it came crashing down. And this can happen to our lives. We need a level for our life. And that is why God has provided us his word. That is why Jesus Christ gives us his word, the Bible. The Bible provides us the level that we need. Jesus Christ is the only one who has the knowledge and the understanding of life that we can actually level ourselves against. He is the authority on everything because he created everything. And because he loves us, he has given us a way of leveling our lives so it can stand the test. And that's why in Matthew 7, 24, he says, Everyone Then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house, but it didn't fall because it had its foundation on the rock and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was its fall. We need a level for our lives. And that is what God provides us in the Bible. We also need a compass. We need a compass in the chaos. Have you ever been lost? You're driving around. I mean, totally lost. Like you get turned around and you go this way and you go that way. And pretty soon you're in a place you don't recognize. You don't, you don't, you can't orient yourself. You don't know where anything is. Your phone's dead. You can't get on Google Maps. It's dark. You can't see the stars. Because it's Southern California, and there are no stars, and you're looking around for a mountain range, there are no mountain ranges to be had. You're lost, you're totally lost. How do you feel? Feel stressed out. Feel super anxious. Now add some people to the car. How do you feel? It's way worse, because everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's telling you where you need to go, and it just starts to make you zoom in to the situation and you lose track of where you are, where you're trying to go. It's a horrible experience. You get stuck. And our lives are like that. We can get stuck in the same way. We can get lost in the same way. We hit these challenges, relational conflict, financial challenges, and we do our best. We make our decisions. We go this way and we go this way and we go this way. And pretty soon we're stuck and we don't know how to get out of here. We don't we don't know how to get back. We can't seem to make the situation better. In our jobs, our, our businesses can fail. In our bodies, our bodies can fail. People can fail us. And when that happens, we feel we don't feel up to the task. We don't know what to do. We don't recognize the situation. And in those moments, we get very, very emotional. We get angry. We can get afraid. And we make decisions, and those decisions can often cause a lot of damage. It's it's not uncommon to hear people say things like, I just got caught up in the emotion, or I don't know what happened. I don't know why I said that. I don't know why I did that. It's not uncommon to find people who just get into these relational cul-de-sacs and say, how did we get here? Why is this happening? How do? Why can't we fix this? In those situations, what do you need? You need a way to orient yourself. You need a fixed point that you can use to get back on track and find the right place to go. You need a compass. That's what a compass provides you. It provides you a fixed point that you can use to get back on track. And that's what God wants to provide you through his word. So in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, it says, all scripture is God breathed out. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for a proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God has provided us the Bible to equip us with the tools that we need to make the right choice, no matter how bad the situation, no matter how stuck we are, no matter how lost we feel especially when the emotions are high, especially when everything inside of you and even the people around you are telling you to go the wrong way. It's at those moments that we need a compass to orient us, to keep pointing us in the right direction. And that is what God wants to provide us in his word. I have experienced this in my life. Uh, Over a decade ago, I was a water polo coach. I coached a girls' and guys' water polo team for a high school in Riverside. And I had a pair of sisters that played for me, And one of them decided she wanted, to, uh, she wanted to get kicked off my team. Now, why, why would she want to get kicked off my team? Why not just quit? Well, she had thought or she believed that her parents wouldn't let her quit my water polo team or any team once she started. So the only way for her to get off this team was to be so ornery and such a problem that I had to throw her off the team. So that's what she did. She didn't come to practice, she didn't do what she was supposed to do, and after many talks and many chances and many warnings, I finally removed her from the water polo team. So she goes home to her parents, and she tells them that I kicked her off the team, but she fails to mention that this is all part of her master plan. So her parents, they go ballistic. They are not happy with me, and they come after me, and they start writing emails, and they start making phone calls, and they start talking to other parents. They're trying to destroy my reputation. They're trying to get me fired as the water polo coach, and inside, I am Angry. I am ready for battle. I mean, I want to go back at these people. I want to write my own email. I want to spread my own words. And, and here's the problem the girl's sister is still playing for me. So every day I see her sister, I have these feelings of resentment, and she hasn't even done anything wrong. And so the whole time this is going on, God is speaking to me through the messages at Church in the Valley and then the things that I am reading in my own time in the Bible. And one of the things that He's saying is He's saying to me that I don't. I don't vindicate myself. I don't get revenge for myself. I don't have to go and make sure that I'm okay, that I can trust God to take care of my reputation, which is not my natural instinct. In Psalm uh, Psalm 37, God says, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn and the justice of your cause like the noonday sun. So be still before the Lord and wait, wait patiently for him. Don't worry when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. So from the pulpit and then from the Bible that I'm reading, God is telling me that I'm not supposed to retaliate. I'm not supposed to get them back, that I'm supposed to stick with doing right towards her sister and allow God to vindicate me. So here's what happens. The mom, she goes to the athletic director, but he backs me. So then she goes to the vice principal and he backs the athletic director. So then she goes to the principal but he backs the vice principal. So she finally goes to the assistant superintendent of the school district. And right about the time that the assistant superintendent is going to turn around and look into our case, her daughter confesses all of it in front of one of her teachers. She has a friend and she's bragging about how she'd been trying to get kicked off this team. And it took forever for for coach Sprankle to do it. But finally she got kicked off the team and now he's going to get in trouble and he's going to get fired. And she's saying this right in front of another teacher So he goes down to the athletic director, and he tells everything he heard, and right when the assistant superintendent starts to look into the situation, it comes out that she'd been lying. It was all a lie. They had been digging this hole for me, getting ready to push me in, and they fell into it themselves. And here's the kicker. The mother worked for the assistant superintendent, and I had to wait, and I wanted to react And everything inside of me and the people around me, some of the people around me were telling me, you got to do something. You got to, you got to take care of yourself. You got to go the wrong way. But God's word is a compass and God uses the messages, the sermons, the Bible to keep you pointed in the right direction. We need a compass in our lives and God's word provides that. We also need an MRI for our souls. Um, I have back pain. Some of you have had back pain before and I'm pretty sure I know what it is, but sometimes you have injuries And you don't know what they are. Something's going on inside of you, and you don't know what's wrong. It's physical problems. And you don't have the ability to get a picture of your insides. And so you do the best you can, but you can't fix it. So in those situations, what you need is you need some way to see what's going on on the inside. And that's why we go to doctors, because doctors have machines that they use, uh, MRI machines. This is an MRI machine. And what it does is it creates a picture of the tissues and the organs in your body, by using uh, magnetic resonance imaging. And I don't know exactly what that means, but it sounds really good, and it allows them to get a picture of your insides. And here's the point. When they can see what's going on inside of you, they can prescribe a treatment plan that can help you heal. It's very helpful. As human beings, we need an MRI for our soul. Because a lot of the pain and a lot of the trouble that we're dealing with, it's not just physical. It's soul problems we are tied up in knots inside. We have pain, we have wounds, we have things that we seem to not be able to get over or get past. And we don't know why. We don't know what's causing them. We don't know where they come from. We don't know what's, what's up. We don't have a picture of our insides. And what we need is some way to see what's causing these, these soul knots. And what it is, is these are, these are the results of the complex interplay of, of a human being. A human being has a will and a mind, which is made up of his thoughts and his emotions. He's a part of a social group. And all of these things kind of wind together as cords to create the knots that get tied up inside. And it's very hard for us to know what to do. And so a lot of people, they live life kind of with a limp, a soul limp, because they can't heal, because they don't know what's going on inside. And what God provides us in the Bible is an MRI. He provides us a picture of what's going on in our soul. And so in Hebrews 4.12, the writer of Hebrews describes the Bible this way. He says, For the word of God, it's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, than any scalpel that a doctor has. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The Bible provides us a picture of what's going on inside of us. And when we have that picture, with God's help, we can begin to untie the knots. We can begin to heal from the soul wounds. I know when, um, in, in my life I've experienced this. Uh, I was a very angry young man and a very angry young adult. I remember when I was a kid, when I felt like my parents were not being nice or fair or I felt like somebody was doing wrong to me, I would go in my room and I would vent and I would fight and I would have arguments, arguments with them in my mind. And I kept doing this. All the way into my adult years. I would drive down the street after work. Somebody had said something to me. They disrespected me. They, 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 they did something I didn't like. And I'm arguing in my head. I'm, I'm actually talking out loud in my car. I'm like fighting with them. And they're not in the car. I'm just making stuff up. Things they didn't even say. And I'm just running these scenarios in my mind. And I'm getting worked up. And I'm feeling angry. And I carried around a lot of bitterness. And a lot of malice. And I was always kind of on edge. I had a lot of enemies. Now, this is just how I lived, and I knew what it felt like, but I didn't understand what was going on inside. So I become a Christian. God saves me. I'm involved in Church in the Valley, and one day, Pastor Randy is preaching a message on thoughts. This is back at Chaparral, and he was talking about how God wants us to take control of our thoughts, and God wants to help us get control of our thoughts, and how our thoughts are tied to our emotions, and how our thoughts matter. Never really thought about that. And so he, he, he was going through a verse, Philippians 4, 8 through 9. And it says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever, whatever is admirable, if anything be excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And what Randy did was he explained what each of those words meant and how each of them were like a filter that you use to filter your thoughts, to, to clean out the junk and the anger and the lies and the things that are not true. And I'd never thought about this. So I started to do this. I tried to do this. And I kept finding that every time I would start running these scenarios, I realized, oh, no, no, I can't do this. This is not true. This is not good. And after a while, I was able to stop this habit that I had. And the anger and the bitterness began to kind of evaporate. And this was a real healing thing for me. But I didn't know this was going on in my life for the first 21 years. I didn't know how I tick on the inside. It was through the Bible, it was through the preaching of the Bible, that I began to understand my own soul. God provided me an MRI, and the knots began to get untied. For some of us here, you have knots inside of you. And you don't quite know why it is you feel this way, why you keep doing that thing, why you can't seem to stop, why you can't heal from that soul limp. And the reason why, oftentimes, is because you do not have an accurate picture of the kind of thing you are, how you tick, and what is causing what. And only God can give you that picture. And he gives you that picture through the Bible. The last thing, the last thing we, we really need, and the Bible provides us, is a mirror for our moral character. So in James 1, 22 through 25, here's what it says. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who is, looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away at once forgetting what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Let's be really honest. We like to think the best of ourselves. We like to see the best in ourselves. It's why we don't like to weigh ourselves in the morning, especially after we've had a big meal the night before. We don't want to see what the scale says. We like to think that we're lighter than we are. It's why we don't want to look at our bank accounts at the end of the month. We don't want to see all the money we spent and all the money we don't have. It's why sometimes I just don't want to look at the human highlight reel that is Facebook and Instagram and all the amazing things that beautiful people are doing. Because when I compare my life to it, it doesn't look as exciting. We don't want to see bad in ourselves. We want to see ourselves in the best light. That's just that's natural. That's very normal. And so when we come to the Bible, oftentimes we'll read it and it'll feel bad. We'll feel convicted by sin. We'll see a reflection in the scriptures of ourselves morally and we don't like the picture. And that creates a tension in us. And oftentimes we can kind of push it away because we don't like how it feels. And that's a very normal reaction. But here's the thing. The good news is this. God created the human race. He created us like him, morally perfect and good. No sin. He created us to be full of love and to grow in wisdom. And the first generation of the human race broke that. And the human race fell into this morally corrupt state where our lives are characterized by selfishness. They are characterized by pride. They are characterized by different forms of violence, everyone, everywhere at all times. And in this state, God sees us. He sees what he wanted us to be. And he comes into our world. He becomes a man on a rescue mission. And through Jesus Christ's cross, God is recovering his image in mankind. God is restoring and redeeming the human race. If you give your life to Christ, if you are born again, God is, is transforming you into the kind of person that he always wanted you to be. He's transforming the human race back to where they started. And at the end of the, of the story, we are going to live with him again in a garden city where we shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. God has not abandoned us in moral decay. He wants to restore us morally. So as Christians, when we look at the Bible We don't have to feel discouraged. We don't have to feel beat down. When we look into the mirror and we see things that we need to work on, those are things that God wants to transform in us. Those are things that God wants to grow us through. And we have confidence that our good and loving Father will change us from glory to glory as we work with Him over time. But we need that mirror. We need that mirror to see who we really are. What we really need to work on next. And that is what the Bible provides us. It provides us a mirror for our moral character. So these are some of the things the Bible provides. These are things the human race desperately needs. But here's the thing. None of these benefits will ever be mine if I never apply what I hear, if I never apply what I read. And that's why at Church in the Valley, when we preach, when when there's teaching from the scripture, the main goal on Sundays is to help people learn how to apply the Bible to their daily life. We're trying to help people learn how to get it into their life. Because if you don't get it into your life, if you don't change, if you don't change your thinking or your emotions or your actions, if you don't change your social group as a result, sometimes you need to do that as a result of what God is saying in the scriptures, then no power and no change happens in your life. This is why when you read the New Testament, the emphasis is on doing. So in James uh, one twenty-five, he says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The emphasis is on the doing. Because there are just some things that God will never do through a message. He'll, he'll never change through a sermon. And some of those things are this. God is not going to change our lives, and he's not going to fix our problems simply by listening to a message on Sundays like this. My, my life, my problems, they are the product of all of my choices and the choices of other people who have affected me up until this point in my life. And if I want my life to look differently, if I want my problems to be fixed, then I'm going to have to make decisions and choices. And over time, those things will change. God is not going to make me change or fix me simply by what I hear. I have to do it. Something else God is not going to do is he is not going to force us to believe. He's not going to make us believe. So when Jesus was uh, ministering, there was these people called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they had the best education. They had the best uh, um, positions, they were religious leaders, they had all the money. And Jesus comes along and he's doing miracles and he's teaching these amazing things about God. And these are the people that should have recognized him for who he was. These are the people who should have worshipped and followed him. These are the people that should have believed him. But they didn't. Why? Jesus said they didn't believe him because they didn't want to. They had ears and they had eyes and they had minds, but they didn't use those things to understand. They didn't want to know what Jesus was saying. They didn't want Jesus to be God. They didn't want Jesus to be the authority. They didn't want to believe what he was teaching because if they did believe it, it would mean they'd have to change. It would mean they'd have to give up their lifestyles. It would mean they'd have to give up their positions. It means some of the things that they held to be true turned out not to be true. And I can be the exact same way. I can come to the Bible with my life, my lifestyle, my views, my positions that I've accumulated over my life. And I read it, and if it's true, I'm going to have to change. If it's true, I'm going to have to give up things. It might affect my identity, and I don't necessarily want it to be true. So I can say, well, I just don't believe that. But it's not because there's not sufficient information. It's not because there's not enough evidence to believe it. It's because I don't want to believe it. Because if it's true, I have to change. And sometimes we can be like that when we hear the Word of God being treat, uh, preached. And so one of the things God will never do is He will not make you believe. But there are some things He will do through a sermon. Uh, they are. He will help me see how life works. He will encourage me. Sometimes in a sermon like this, you you just really get encouraged by God. You come here, you're tired. Getting your kids here is hard. You know, you might be stressed. You might have a conflict on the way to church, and through the message, God encourages you in some key way. God will also convince you of the truth. But wait a minute. You just said He won't make me believe. Well, that's true. He won't make you believe. But if you're open. If you're willing to understand, if you come here and you say, God, I, if it's true, I want to know. If it's good, I want to know. If it's real, I want to know. I'm open. I want to know. Please show me. God will convince you, He will convict you of the truth. Something else God will do is He will show you what's really valuable in life. The things that are valuable to God, they tend to be very low on the worldly value scale. And as you watch the lives of men and women who have walked with God, And you see how it works out when they become like God, when they love what he loves and they do what he does and they think what he thinks. You see the blessing of God flow in their life. You begin to understand what's really valuable in life. And finally, the last thing is God will unify us as a church through his message. He'll unify us as we hear the word of God together, as we understand the scriptures together. He unites the body of Christ so that we can accomplish the mission that God has for his church. So these are some of the things that God will do through the message. So as I wrap up, I'd like to invite the band to come back up. As I wrap up, I'd like to ask you this question. Um, how can you make the most out of Sundays? What can you do to get the benefits that we've outlined here? Well, there's, there's five things you can do. Eyes, ears, mind, mouth, and hands. Eyes, ears, mind, mouth, and hands. It's easy to remember. The first thing is eyes. Ask God to help you focus And hear from him when you come to a service like this. It's easy to be distracted. So before you leave your house or before you walk into the Diamond Bar Center, ask God to help you stay focused from distraction so that you can hear from him. The second thing is ears. God has something to say to each and every one of us. Brad prayed this uh, earlier in the service. God wants to speak to us through the message. But we have to come ready to hear. So we want to ask God to help us hear. The third thing is our mind. We want to understand what God is saying. And so we have to ask God, please help me understand what you're teaching me. If it's true, I want to know. If it's real, I want to know. If it's good, I want to know. Even if that means I'm going to have to change. Help me understand. And then there's there's things you can do to apply the word of God. Like mouth. You can tell people, like your family, if you're driving home after church, make it a habit of telling people, here's what I heard God say. Here's the part of the message that stood out to me. And here's what I intend to do. If you make it a habit of, of telling others, sharing with others what you want to do as a result of the message, that's going to help you get it into your life, which is where the blessing is. And then finally, do it. Apply it. Do the thing that God has shown you to do. So, on your connection card, if you take that out, usually we have some very specific next steps for you. But today I've left them blank and I'd like you just to take some time to think about what what are your next steps? What do you need to do as a result of this message? And then, purpose to do it, because the blessing is in the doing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for today and for your word, and I pray that uh, you would help us as we come to a gathering like this to hear from you. I pray that you would uh, remove distractions, that you'd speak to us, that you help us understand so that we can apply your word and find your blessing. We thank you for the Bible and the truth, and we give you thanks in Jesus' name.